Welcome back to the peripheral. This is going to be kind of a special episode, uh, releasing early because uh, I'd been trying to get this episode out at the time where my guest had released his book, but uh, due to COVID and some other scheduling issues, that didn't happen. So uh, on today's episode, I'm speaking with Clancy Martin. He is a professor at UMKC, which is a university right down the street from me that I actually attended for a semester or a year back in the 90s. I don't remember now. Clancy just released a book called How Not to Kill Yourself, and it's sort of a loose autobiography of his life with a focus on his suicidal ideation and attempts. He had had multiple attempts over his lifetime and has finally pulled himself out of that dark place and decided to write a book about it. Uh, During our discussion, you'll hear us joke and laugh because I'm trying to... I'm trying to bring a little levity to a dark subject. We talk about his book in great detail. Hopefully you'll get something out of the interview without having read his book. Uh, We cover a lot of topics. I highly recommend his book. I highly recommend that you read it. Uh, It covers a lot of bases about suicide. We talk about solutions for anyone that's in an acute situation or a more chronic state. And uh, hopefully, hearing a very frank and raw conversation about it will be helpful. I always want someone to seek help, call somebody if they are in a crisis situation. So without further ado, here's Clancy. Thank you, Justin. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm Clancy Martin. I'm a philosophy professor at the University of Missouri in Kansas City and at Ashoka University in New Delhi. I've made more than 10 attempts uh, to take my own life, and I'm very grateful that I failed and that, that I'm, you know, kind of comically bad at uh, killing myself. I'm, I'm very lucky and happy about this. I've written a variety of books about philosophy, also a couple novels, but my latest book is called How Not to Kill Yourself, and it's especially uh, directed at people who have made an attempt who suffer from suicidal ideation, maybe chronic suicidal ideation, or and also for those many people who have had someone they love or a good friend um, die by suicide and, and want to understand what the thinking of that person was like. I think that um, if we just all talk more frankly, openly, and honestly about our feelings about suicide, um, we will see that suicide is, generally speaking, really not a good idea and can be avoided and that people really can be helped. As soon as your book was announced, I'd actually like pre-ordered it and have listened to it like twice now. So, <laughs> oh. oh, well, I apologize and thank you so much. <laughs> I heard that you had COVID. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, we're still kind of just recovering from it, but um, uh, we're on the upswing. Well, I had COVID, uh, I, I guess it was January of 2022, and I had it for- You're the, an early adopter. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, I had it for the entire month of Oh January. my God. I actually called the hospital, and I told them my symptoms, and they said, you probably need to be hospitalized with the symptoms you have 
but we're at max capacity and you will probably die in our waiting room. So that's like about the worst thing you can hear from a hospital when you, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't, it doesn't get much worse than that. You'll be more comfortable at home. Than... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, maybe gather your loved ones, but uh, at a distance. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad you're okay because it would have been a little ironic if. Uh... Yeah. Wouldn't it? <laughs> That would if have been really you had hilarious. died from COVID. COVID, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, <sighs> a little dark humor here, but no, I... no, no, entirely <laughs> appropriate, and um, it would be particularly humorous for me because it's just been the past few months where I've been feeling like, you know what, I don't want to die. Yeah. I finally have this feeling where I want to live, and so that would be uh, especially fitting if just at the moment where I was like, hey, no, I want more of this thing called life that got <laughs> taken out of my hand. You took me for granted for too long, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And and I guess that's why your book struck such a chord with me, because it was about that time that I listened to your book. I personally started pulling myself out of a funk. I personally uh -huh. was pulling myself out of uh, this. I don't care if, if I live. It wasn't that I wanted right. to die, but I was just kind of like, I'm not getting much joy or happiness. And that was right. actually going to be, well, I, this is my own thought. I just want to get your thoughts on it. But when you're in a depressive state or a suicidal state, I don't think you're able to experience joy or happiness but you are able to experience pleasure and pain, kind of like the Jane's Addiction song. Yeah. Um, and, right. and that leads to very reckless behavior. Do you agree with that? I totally agree with all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. You know, what winds up happening, I, you know, I, I mentioned this in, um, that section of the book about like when I was checking into the psychiatric ward, um, and uh or being checked into i should say the psychiatric ward how you're when you're in that kind of state where you can't experience as you say these kind of more robust conceptions of flourishing um but you can still experience pain or pleasure it's like time contracts in your brain in a funny way and you start sort of living in this moment to moment way. And when you're living in that moment to moment way, um, it does have a real impact upon your impulse control because it's, it's a little bit like nothing feels real. And it's a little bit like everything feels like, you know, you can sort of do what you, in a way you can kind of do whatever you want because it just, you're, you, you're somehow disconnected from our ordinary way of thinking about, you know, what constitutes, the meaning of life and why we are doing what we're doing, you know? Yeah. Listening to your story, you know, you're drinking, you're doing drugs, or you're having an affair. It's like you're seeking pleasure because you don't have any happiness. Yeah, exactly. That's beautifully said, perfectly yeah. said, seeking pleasure because you don't have any happiness. Yeah. And maybe have even kind of lost the concept of happiness or the, the, the belief in happiness that was what really struck me because honestly i've i feel like i've actually been pretty happy and led a pretty normal life um up until a few years ago and then the uh the pandemic kind of amplified everything and uh right and so the last few years um i've i've had my sister died of a fentanyl overdose and um, oh i'm so sorry yeah like a lot That's of bad things 
but hearing your story and being like, well, this guy's probably felt more this way almost his entire life. Whereas I've only felt this way a, a few years, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it was very relatable to me. And I oh. felt like, oh, I'm not crazy. I'm not out of sorts here. This is this is a relatable feeling or state to be in. Yeah, well, thanks. You know, you're not putting words in my mouth at all. I, that That's exactly right. And um, it is true. I had slowly but surely come to believe that um, the way that I was, you know, the way that you're talking about have feeling in the over the past few years was just kind of the only way of existing that there was and that other people I you know for a long time I thought other people were just pretending to feel otherwise and then when I got to an age where I started to like be brave enough to ask people how they were feeling and and they were reporting to me that they were feeling differently than I was feeling I was very confused by it and I wondered if they were in some kind of state of extremely complicated self-deception that allowed them to to suppose they were feeling a way different than how they were actually feeling. I just like I I really couldn't understand that people didn't feel this way all the time. And then then I did have these brief periods when I was like, wait a second, I'm I actually I think my me I'm just kind of feeling happy and happy in this very stable way. It was always very much um, colored by this certainty, absolute certainty that it was going to be brief and that the hammer was going to fall very quickly and and almost in such a way that I I couldn't sort of pause to let myself enjoy it. And now, you know, that um, these past few months, it's weird. I've been having this like real, I don't want to, jinx myself but you know almost absence of suicidal ideation and um when i do think about suicide these past three four five months i always think no yeah that's not a good idea or that's not an option for you clancy and i don't have to the thought doesn't stay with me in the same way when you're not thinking about something it's not that you notice you're not thinking it's when you notice hey that's a thing and then it brings it all back, but it's hard to notice when you're not thinking about something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And that, that that's related to that yeah. point that um uh, Andrew Solomon makes really well, you know, that it's like the the chief thing to remember when you're depressed is that this you haven't always been this way and you won't always be this way, but it's it's almost impossible to believe it when you're depressed. Just as um, when you are going through a period of, you know, of contentment, it's hard to remember what it was like when you were so depressed that you couldn't even imagine kind of making it from one day to the next. And it's weird that the human mind is that way. Yeah. When you are in a depressed or suicidal state, it's, it's impossible for someone to reason with you with logic or or tell you anything really because your depressed state is going to twist it all yep. into something else and that was something that i i definitely related to in the book when you're talking about that you, you you don't say it outright but you're talking about how people can't say anything to you you know it's like you're up on a building you know with your dangling about to jump and somebody right. on the ground saying you know you have so much to live for 
yeah. <laughs> a, a suicidal person, they don't hear that. Yeah, exactly. You're totally incapable of hearing that. I think this is such an important point because I've noticed how it applies to more than just depression or suicidal states. When it comes to like core beliefs that we have, I actually think this is why Socrates liked to ask questions in the way that he did and um, that people like the Buddha and Christ like to tell stories in the way that they did. When when it comes to core belief states that we have, like, okay, in my own case, the belief that I'd I'd be better off dead, I need to kill myself, which dominated my years, my you know, really dominated all of my life until very recently and may very well come back. You're never going to change that state by some kind of direct contradiction of you know, like saying as you in your excellent example you but you have so much to live for it's just, it's impossible for that kind of language to make any impact on that deeply held belief or set of beliefs what can help to alter those beliefs i think are questions and also um for reasons that i don't know if we understand very well yet stories um when you well, I, I you can't tell somebody something you have to show them yeah exactly yeah yeah isn't isn't it isn't that weird but it's exactly right it's perfectly said you can't tell somebody something you have to show them and you can't tell somebody something but if you start asking them and getting them to tell you about their situation it puts them in the position where they may be able to reevaluate it in a way that you could never persuade them and in your attempt to persuade them will probably actually have the opposite effect it'll make them want to defend their position and dig in even more which is why it's so important if you're talking to a suicidal friend never to try to solve their problems but always just to ask them questions about what they're going through yeah so how young were you when you first started having these feelings they're among my earliest the earliest memories that i have and we don't you know memory is such a weird thing we don't know exactly how much is added after the fact by our brains um, as is very well documented but for me the earliest memories that i have memories of carpet you know very early memories of my mother and father they all include this feeling that i am so familiar with that like um i'd be better off dead uh, I need to kill myself. I need to, I need to die from, you know, I don't know how early these memories are, but two, three, four years old, very much there, always, all my earliest memories. That's something that I, I can't relate to uh, because I, again, I had a very normal life, but when I was shocked when you were saying that in the book, because with me, I I had an external factor that drove me to those feelings. Whereas if you want to argue the nature versus nurture thing, you you were kind of born into it at a very young age. And I know you you speak about your father a lot, and I'm sure that had some impact on you. But at such a young age, I, I just was, I, I was like, wow, I'd never even thought of that because if if you don't know, I, I cover true crime on another podcast. And sometimes we cover cases where was it suicide or was it homicide? And there was a, a young boy of like 11 or 12 years old who possibly took his own life. And everyone's like, 
kids don't do that. And I'm like, well, actually they do. Yeah. 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 No, um, it, it has been the dogma for so long that kids don't do that. But I, you know, a student of mine told me and the rest of my class about a suicide attempt he made when he was three or four years old. I, I was recently giving a reading and a psychiatrist came up to me afterwards. And she, she said, my youngest uh, patient to attempt suicide was five years old, but he told me that he'd already been thinking about it for a couple of years after his five-year-old suicide attempt. And she said, we don't realize this, but children make suicide attempts uh, at ages that we, it's hard for us even to imagine that they're even thinking in these terms. Um, they're already uh, considering attempts. And it's, you know, we don't want to think about children in that way. It's too scary and it's too upsetting, but, but it is, it is true that um, for, for a lot of people, they, um, they start thinking in this way very, very young. It's, it's not as uncommon as, as people think, you know, the World Health Organization's estimate is that 10% of the world population suffers from chronic suicidal ideation. And that number is probably low because worldwide people are afraid, you know, there's so much stigma and taboo, people are afraid to report this stuff. So if we didn't have the stigma and taboo and people felt open to talk about how they were feeling, I bet that number would be almost double. Yeah, yeah. So right now, I think under 14, like 14 and up is the first age group that even registers, you know, on the scale and then 18 yep. to blah, blah, blah. But under 14, it's the lowest attempted group. But how much is that actually reported? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How much is that actually reported? And so a lot of psychiatrists have, have been arguing to expand the group to age 10 now, but it's, you know, that's, that's a brand new movement. Something I found uh, I, I didn't know and found, I won't say fascinating because I don't want to refer to things in your book as fascinating when it's such a dark topic. But when you talk about uh, you know, Robin Williams or uh, Anthony Bourdain, when a famous person takes their own life and how that actually causes a ripple of other suicides. Yeah, the... Um so-called Werther effect because of Goethe's novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther, ending in the death of the protagonist um, and all the copycat suicides that happened afterward. And yeah, you know, we have probably two, 3,000 extra deaths because of um, Ro uh, Robin Williams' death. You know, there's a K-pop star who died yesterday, very uh, obviously of suicide, but the... the um, the news is wisely not reporting it as a suicide yet because they're worried about um, it resulting in copycat suicides among, you know, young people who were his, his fans. And so I'm glad they're not reporting it as a suicide. It's interesting. There are two effects that uh, are relevant, especially for people like you and me who um, work uh, in the public public writing, public sphere, talking about um, ideas, and especially ideas like these, suicide, relate, mental health-related stuff. Um, the Werther effect and the Papageno effect. And the Werther effect is like, if you say such and such K-pop star died by suicide, he was found hanging in his bathroom, 
from the belt of his um, his bathrobe, it, the suicide rate will rise. It's as simple as that. We know this. It's well documented. The opposite, the opposite effect, the Papageno effect, so-called because of the character of Papageno and Mozart, Mozart's uh, The Magic Flute, who is thinking about suicide but then is talked out, talked out of it by his friends, is when someone in the media says, okay, Anthony Bourdain died. He died of suicide. We know that he had been um, talking about a suicide and suicidal ideation for years. He writes about um, self-destructive and parasuicidal behaviors in his work. And um, he had an ongoing struggle with depression and anxiety and, and tells the story, the whole story properly of how he came to this suicide. The opposite thing happens amazingly, miraculously. The suicide rate in the population goes down. And that's because when people who suffer from suicidal ideation hear the real story and they recognize that, okay, it's not that this person had an epiphany, oh, I'm in pain, I should kill myself, but rather they'd been suffering from this condition, they'd been fighting this fight, this struggle, and then had finally given into it, they recognize, oh, I'm not alone, and maybe I can keep on going, and maybe he didn't have to do it. You know, They think to themselves, oh, actually, Anthony Bourdain made a mistake, not Anthony Bourdain realized that he needed to do this. And so it's this danger for people in the media if we are sloppy or hasty or casual in the way that we talk about suicide but it's also this huge opportunity we can save lives if we do it in a responsible way yeah and i i was actually a little hesitant of how to interview you because i didn't want to be you know too hasty i didn't want to be messy with it and put it yeah, out it's there. a scary thing for people yeah. like us i i know that's a whole chapter almost in your book of by writing this book, you're not wanting to contribute, but yeah. you're trying to help how, how, I mean, you, you summarize it in the book perfectly. And I can't, uh, I can't emphasize it enough that people should go buy it, but how, like, how is talking about it more preventative um, for some people? I think the key to talking about it um in, in a way that is preventative uh, is, it's like I, I talk about in the book how, uh, you know, I visited this student of mine in the psychiatric hospital after she had made an attempt. And I, we had this kind of conversation about, you know, how to, what can we say to each other after an attempt? And she says to me, you know, I think the best thing to do is to tell your story. And it's just like you were saying before, when when you show people, and showing people means showing them as, as much of the truth of the story as possible, what, why someone did this, and also maybe show them ways of handling uh, the suicidal ideation that they're struggling with. It's just as simple as reaching out to a friend and saying, hey, you know, I'm having a bit of a hard time. And, um, and then suddenly the pressure will be alleviated a little bit, or even just writing it down on your phone, taking a note in your phone, talking about the way in which you're having a hard time, the pressure will be alleviated a bit. If we talk about it in that way, if we tell the stories properly, give a full account of the stories, then we can and we will. It's just 
statistically true. We will be helping people. We will be saving lives. And, you know, above all, what we don't want to do is to make this ever appear to be a kind of solution to someone's problem, because it really is not a, a solution. All that's going to happen when you, uh, if you're in despair and you take your own life, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein put it so well. He said, when you, if, you, if you take your own life in despair, you don't end that despair. You make the despair eternal. You make it permanent. It's the final thing. He didn't mean it in a religious way at all. He wasn't a religious person. Um, he just meant that you make that you take that despair, and it's the last thing that uh, will always be for for the person that um, you are or were. And um, and then the other way in which you make it permanent is you, you know, it's like the death of um, your sister by overdose when someone leaves our lives unexpectedly and we don't get a chance to say goodbye when we don't have all of these you know opportunities that we otherwise have when people die the kind of damage the kind of grief the kind of um, pain that is created is of a whole different order than what is created in, you know, um, more ordinary death processes. So uh, it's, you make the despair eternal, not just for yourself, but you also spread it all around to all these people who cared about you, who love you, or who needed you in all these different ways. The detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. It's a very jarring, abrupt end that a lot of people yeah. are going to struggle to process with. 
Yeah. And people are going to blame themselves. Yeah. And even though you know that they, pro in your mind, you're like, you were the only thing keeping me alive and I was fighting this battle and, you know, you feel so ashamed, speaking for myself, when you, you, you know you're letting everyone down and you're in, that adds to your self-loathing and that adds to your despair. But the truth of the matter is that those people, unfortunately, they did want you to stick around and they are going to blame themselves. Um, there's, just, there's just no getting around it. It doesn't matter what kind of note you leave. They're still going to blame themselves. Yeah. And uh, going back to you know not wanting to put the, the topic out there in a reckless manner and uh, romanticizing it or, or giving it any kind of credence, but you talk about a lot of your attempts in the book and none of them sound pleasant at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, like right. you, know, you, you start with like, like <laughs> trying to hang yourself and, and how you <laughs> fucked up your esophagus. Like you, yeah. you have this, like this almost a scar around your throat for like two weeks, how you swam out into the ocean and tell you were exhausted. And then you kept swimming and then decided not to, I, that sounds nightmarish to me. And I, at no point for me and hopefully anyone else, did any of those attempts sound like, oh, that was a good idea or I could have done that. It was like, oh, my God, that sounds terrifying. And Yeah, they. I'm so glad you point that out. They are terrifying. They are nightmarish. It is a horrible experience. I'm really glad you point that out. And and generally speaking, it's also a whole lot more painful than you think it's going to be. Um, you know, you have trouble conceptualizing how painful it is until you're in the middle of the pain and the terror that goes along with making an attempt. And then you're like, oh, my God, this is so horrible. Yeah. And uh, so these are good things to bear in mind. And then, you know, I make this kind of, dark joke that I make in the book. But my dad, you know, when I once talked to my dad about suicide, he said, you know, son, don't ever do it. You'll just, you wind up in the astral hells. He believed in an afterlife and reincarnation. And he thought that suicide was one of these things, not because it was some sort of punishment for a sin, but because um, you were doing a violent thing in a moment of um, psychological despair. So you were, you were kind of guaranteeing that you were making your your mental state a whole lot worse by doing this. You won't be gone, you won't die, you'll just wake up someplace a whole lot worse. And that's the other thing that I have found to be true of suicide attempts is, you know, you're going to wake up if you, <laughs> with luck, you will fail, you will not, you will not die. And then, but your whole situation, everything about your situation is going to be worse than it was before you made the attempt because you're going to be in physical pain. You're probably going to be in the hospital. You're going to have all this explaining to do. They're probably going to lock you up for at least 72 hours, maybe longer. Um, you know, and you, uh, yeah. it's just, it, <laughs> well, whether, it screws all kinds of stuff up. Whether you complete and then after life and the next life, you wake up in a worse place or in a hell or whatever. Right. Or if you don't complete it, your life between the shame, the yep. humility, the the financial situation, all of those yep. things, you wake up in a worse place. And I exactly I absolutely yep. did too. And um and it's taken me years to find 
that happiness again from my my attempt. I love that you talk about, you know, you wake up in a different, in a worse place. Now, weirdly enough, you, you talk about so many philosophical things in the book. And there was another quote, I don't know who it was, but you said that like, if you take your own life, you didn't learn the lesson you needed to learn or something to that effect. And you're going to keep going through the cycle until you figure it out. And it's so weird how we justify anything in life to live or not live. And I, I won't say I'm a total atheist, but I don't believe in really much of anything. Yet that line of, if you take your own life, then you didn't learn your lesson and you're going to have to repeat over and over. Yeah. And, I, and I'm like such a rebel. I'm like, I'm not repeating shit. I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to go ahead and live. Like, yeah. even, though, even though I don't believe in any of that, that right. was my train of thought was, oh, I'm going to prove the, the whatever wrong that I don't even right. believe in. And it's yeah. So well, that's a really healthy response, I think. And, you know, and that's, that's basically what Albert Camus says, as you, as you may know, Albert Camus says, but really the best reason in a way for not killing yourself is just proving the them wrong, even though we don't know what the them is, you know, for him, the them is kind of like, um, that life is so hard and that the universe doesn't really seem to provide us with this meaning that we demand of it. And so he's kind of like saying, you know what, universe, uh, F you. I, yeah. I see what you're trying to do to me and I'm not gonna let you do it. I, there's, for, for a long time, that that didn't really resonate with me, but now it it does. I, I, like, I like that kind of, stubbornness there's a a woman i write about in the book um her name was rosemary manning and she wrote a book called a time and a time under the pseudonym sarah davis which is about her two suicide attempts and she died a natural death um very talented writer who also was kind of famous as a children's writer but she sort of concludes the same thing that I'm going to stick around, not because I really know why I'm sticking around and not because I think that I'm necessarily going to be happy or any of that, but just like I'm too stubborn to let life bully me in this way. And I really like that attitude. And I also like the way you put it that, you know, this idea that there is, Viktor Frankl puts it also the way that you do. Viktor Frankl says, when he was um, counseling suicidal people in the camps at Dachau and other camps, he said, what we realized as we were all talking together was that we'd been asking questions of life all this time, like life, when are you going to give me this? Life, when are you going to give me that? And what we hadn't realized is that life is asking us a question. And the way you put it, like, you know, have I learned the lesson? That's kind of the question life is asking us. And we especially notice it when we're depressed or when we're going through a really rough time. Like, life is asking us this question, can I keep going? Even if it's just like, can I keep going for one more hour? Or even, can I keep going for five more minutes? Can I get out of the room that I'm in where I'm thinking about making an attempt and just go for a walk. Can I do that much? When life is asking you this question, you know, you can say, yes, I'm going to try. 
I'm going to set this up in a weird way, but I remember in the movie Princess Bride when the Dread Pirate Roberts or whatever says, I'm going to kill you tomorrow, so enjoy your day. And then in your book, you said that you just kept suicide as an option or an open door. And you're like, well, I can always just do it tomorrow as long as I can get through today. And it's that pause. Of, yeah, exactly. You know. That pause. And, um, you know, the, the Stoics have this, uh, the door is always open argument, like, and, and David Hume says the same thing, like, and Nietzsche also, this should be a great consolation to you. You always, you're always free to do this. And so no one's stopping you, you know, we're not going to interfere with you. So that, that freedom that you can always do it tomorrow should give you a little bit of room to breathe should ease the panic a little bit just and then what i tell people when they come to me i i always tell them hey you know let's let's talk about this let's see if you could just wait until tomorrow because it'll always be there tomorrow and then there i usually say there's one other thing that i want you to try to do today which is um at some point during the day smile at someone unexpectedly for no reason who you think like wasn't expecting a smile or you know just like might be in need of a smile and when you smile at that person this unexpected smile maybe someone who's really needing it and they are reassured by your smile you have suddenly given the whole universe and this one particular person something really good that didn't exist before you know just that one tiny little thing you smiled at someone who who wasn't expecting it and you don't know what that person is taking away from the smile they might think like oh uh, uh she or he was attracted to me and that's why they were smiling with me so i must be attractive or oh that person is uh having a nice day or that or that person that has an interest in me but they're going to take something good away from it you know it's you're not going to be doing harm you're going to be doing help and it's the tiniest thing and all of us have the power to do it and suddenly your life the fact that you lived one more day made the universe a better place just by doing that tiny little thing and so if we can just do even that much it was worth sticking around for one more day you know yeah. I don't know if you came right out and said it in the book, but when you have that door open, that option of I can just take my life tomorrow, well, you have that door, that elephant in the room that you can do that at any time and you choose not to. And I think people should give themselves credit that they chose not to with that door in the room every day. That yeah, way. I completely agree with you. I mean, this is for me, um, maybe the most important thing that I have to say in this book. And the most important thing we can say in this conversation is when you have that door open all the time, and especially if you're someone who's like, man, I gotta go walk through that door, and you don't, you should pat yourself on the back that you you haven't yet. Or if you've made attempts in the past and it's in front of you now and you're like, and you choose not to walk through that door, you should just say, damn straight, good for me. I chose not to walk through that door today. Maybe I will tomorrow, but today I didn't. And that's something I deserve a little pat on the back for. You know, you did it. Whatever age you are, you know, listening to us talking about this, 
you made it to whether you're 17 or 27 or 67 or 87, you made it, you know, and life is so hard and you should give yourself a big pat on the back that you've made it this far because it ain't easy. And this is a, a touchy subject because I always want to tell people to get help, get therapy. But for me, like for a little while, I was going to appointment after appointment. I, I even joined a, a suicide anonymous group. And after a while, it, it made me ruminate more. Like it was like I have other things in my life I need to focus on. And I guess I was maybe at that point where I just no longer needed those things. And those things just were actually a, a reminder yeah. of this thought process. And, and it made me ruminate, it made me just think and dwell on it. And so I, I was like, I need to stop going <laughs> to some of yeah. these things, or at least not go as much, because yeah. it kept it at the forefront of my head. Whereas I think a lot of people, you need a distraction from it. And that might not be the best distraction. And I, I know that's a, a gray area. And it's it's kind of like saying, don't go to seek help. And I'm not saying that it's just right. Don't immerse yourself in this thought, I guess. Yeah, well, I think this is just absolutely crucial. I mean, I agree with you. Look, there are a lot of and especially if you're in a crisis moment, there are a lot of resources out there. Try them out. Some of them will work. Some of them won't try them out, give them a chance. And um, that simple act of trying to get help is huge. And everybody who everybody should do it and should be applauded for it, especially when they're in a moment of crisis. But also, and this is true also of psychiatric medications, um, it's true of the most mundane things, you know, how much exercise you should get, what you should eat, where you should live, what kind of work you should do. You have to get to a state when it comes to your mental health, especially if you're somebody who's gone through some real mental health struggles, and especially if you're someone who's made a previous attempt. You have to recognize that at the end of the day, you are the caretaker of your mental well-being. No one else, you want to give this responsibility away maybe to somebody else. And in a moment of crisis, it can be helpful to do that. But once the real crisis pass, passes, no one else is going to be able to take care of your mental well-being because no one else is in your head and they really can't see what is working and not as what is not working. And when you make that step towards saying, okay, I'm going to be the one who discriminates between what is helping and what is not helping, what makes me have a better day, what makes me have a worse day, and I'm going to act in accordance with that, then you, I really think you're kind of on the road to recovery, you know, and it's, and, and the thing is, it's frustrating to me sometimes, because we as a culture, we're completely obsessed with physical exercise routines. And we're getting better about talking about mental health, of course, a lot better than we were 10 years ago. The world's better than we were 20 or 30 years ago. But still, we think I think sometimes because a person can look at your body and see what you look like and see how much you're working out or whatever that somehow or other that it's, it's easier to take care of your your external body. But actually, just the opposite is, is the case. People are much more aware of how you are doing 
sort of emotionally and in terms of your overall psychological flourishing than they are of your physical appearance um, by the way you talk, the way you comport yourself. And if you if you give yourself this opportunity to say, no, I'm going to take care of me in terms of what, what I can see makes me healthier and happier on the inside, um, this will have all kinds of benefits for your exterior life. But the, the key is exactly what you just described, saying, no, no, I'm going to start sorting out what is making things worse, what is making things better, and I'll just avoid, not so complicated, I'll just avoid those things that make things worse, and I'll try to focus on those things that make things better. Like for me, if I ride a bike too much, it actually starts to make me really anxious and depressed. Whereas I, as far as I can tell, there's no such thing as walking too much for me, you know, and, and if I'm going through having a really bad day, the more I walk, the better I do. Yeah, we can all put on a suit and tie and go in front of people and put on our face and lie and say, you know, we're okay, but they can see through the suit yeah. and the tie and our words and our actions and the, I, I would call it the glow. If we're not glowing with happiness, people can tell. You're, people yeah. can tell. And it makes you so much worse, at least speaking for myself. And I think this is true of a lot of people. It actually makes you feel worse when you're, are doing that pretend act to try to persuade others. If you can just, you know, let yourself be who you are, but recognize that part of letting yourself be who you are is being willing to be careful with yourself, you know, to really be willing to be careful with yourself. And, you know, it's so many of us, we take better care of our dogs, we take better care of our, of our friends, of our loved ones, than we do of ourselves. And we often will justify and say, well, that's because this person deserves the care and I don't. You've got to let go of that idea. You've got to start accepting the idea that you deserve all of that care and that you're the best one to give it to yourself. Yeah. And I trying to keep this positive, but like when it comes to you helping others more than you help yourself, and then we have this concept that suicide is a selfish act. Mm -hmm. And a thought that popped into my head while listening to your book was sometimes suicide is the only selfish act somebody's ever done in their entire life. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's a there's a one theory about suicide, which is called burden theory. Mm -hmm. And the idea in burden theory, this one popular theory about uh, suicidal, uh, a whole segment of the suicidal population is that people who make attempts on their own lives have trouble letting themselves be burdens to others and that relates to the point that you've just made i do think it is important to recognize you know that you don't have to always be the hero in this story sometimes you can just be a burden sometimes you can just be like okay i i need help i'm just gonna i'm gonna be a burden to others and that's totally cool that doesn't make me a bad person the other thing that I want to say about this question of suicide and selfishness is, um, okay, yes, of course, sometimes suicide is this, we just admit it, sometimes suicide is this incredibly selfish thing. You know what? That's okay. There's People are doing selfish things all day long. The world would, would not exist as it does today if people weren't constantly doing selfish things. So yeah, um, it's okay to say, you know what? I made a suicide attempt. It was a selfish thing. That's all right. I'm, I'm probably going to do some other selfish things today too. 
don't focus on that aspect of it. Well, and then the, another thing that really uh, I I felt I, I loved in the book is you you talk about you know you're feeling sorry for yourself, and then it's well, why not? Nobody else, right? Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's totally appropriate to feel sorry for yourself. Uh, a mentor of mine, uh, a great writer by the name of Diane Williams, who um, is uh, one of America's best living short story writers. One time I was going through a really rough point and I was um, writing a couple emails to her complaining about, you know, this and that. And then I wrote her a follow-up email saying, but don't listen to me. You know, I'm just feeling sorry for myself as usual. And never mind. And she said, never say, I'm just feeling sorry for myself. Feel sorry for yourself. Feel more sorry for yourself. And I thought, my God, this is wisdom speaking, you know? That's right. Feel sorry for yourself. Feel more sorry for yourself. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, stop beating yourself up for feeling sorry for yourself. Exactly. You know, yeah. <laughs> stop guilting yourself. It's it's okay to have that feeling and to hold on to that feeling. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what you just said there, I think, is one of the most profound things we will say in this conversation. It's okay to have that feeling and to hold on to that feeling. This is this is something that is very hard for us to learn, but is so important. And particularly when it comes to suicidal ideation, even with the thought of killing yourself, you should say, when it comes, you should say, it's okay to have this feeling. It's okay even to hang on to this feeling. Even to cling to this feeling is okay. What you don't want to do is act on it. But let it be there. You know, baby it a little. Say, oh, okay, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to recognize you. I'm going to acknowledge you. You know, whatever, you know, here you are, my desire to kill myself. Or here you are, my back-breaking depression. Or here you are, my freaking out anxiety. I'm just going to let you be. Just not going to try and chase you away. Not going to say there's something wrong with you. I'm going I'm to let you be and take care of you. And that is the whole key to starting to be liberated from these feelings is not trying to chase them away not not labeling them not judging them and especially not not feeling like there's something you have to act on you know in your book you actually say observe that feeling like analyze that feeling observe yeah. it um that helped me because i i know that in your book you encompass almost every single thing you can as far as how taking one's own life and other cultures goes how all of these people through time and our society and and the reactions to it all of these different aspects and you know it's like you're a burden you're you're self-loathing you don't like yourself anymore and um and weirdly enough i maybe i'm just a little bit of an outlier but i never hated myself i never thought that i was really a burden on others i i actually think i'm a really good person i actually just felt the rest of the world was shit and it didn't right. des- and it didn't deserve me uh, that might yeah. sound that might sound egotistical might sound narcissistic even but i was like no this this world is shit yeah and- not at all that <laughs> doesn't sound any of those ways that that actually is one of the most commonly and oldest reasons cited for suicide in the literature you you know this this um wonderful 
the first text we have on suicide is um, about 5,000 years old from this ancient Egyptian. And that's very much what he's uh, saying is that, you know, this world is just, uh, it's too bad. It's too, you know, there, there's, there's too much, uh, there's too many bad people in this world. He basically says exactly what you said. This world just doesn't deserve me. And so I'm, I'm going to get out of it. And actually the oldest poem we have on suicide in the literature from china also this is his chief complaint is the world is just too terrible i'm actually a pretty good person but the world around me is just awful and that's why i'm going to kill myself so this is this is a quite common um reason in the the lying that we do to everyone in the rest of the world like i the going from the if you have this thought it's okay observe the thought or the feeling and then be okay with that thought or feeling and move on don't act on it and so that was my thought or feeling and i sat on it i observed it and then i'm i'm not going to lie about it anymore because the amount of lying you have to do to make other people feel better when you're feeling suicidal or you've had an attempt is just astounding it's yes. like like you become a pathological liar about your own feelings and how you see the world <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And then that makes you feel so much worse that it makes you feel so much shakier, so much less willing to accept, you know, who you are, the world as you find it, the, you know, some, uh, everything starts to, to feel valueless when you're involved in that kind of lying rather than just accepting. And, you know, as, as the great Buddhist Lama Sangsar Jamyang Chense Rinpoche says, you know, if you do the opposite thing, if you are, if you're willing to be honest with the feeling, investigate the feeling, like really look at the feeling, you do that. If you practice that for say like a month, which sounds like a long time sometimes, but then you know a month can actually go by very quickly, especially if you're thinking about the big question of whether to live or die. He says by the end of that month. You'll, you'll be like a fisherman who has never caught a fish, desperately trying to catch that feeling again in just a month of changing the way you comport yourself towards that feeling. And I, I, think, this is, I think this is profound wisdom. Yeah, it's, uh, something my, my therapist told me was just change your verbiage. <laughs> so he's like, instead of saying the world is shitty, He's like, maybe say the world has messed up priorities. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I like that. That's a good therapist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then and then from the world has messed up priorities to the world could prioritize better. <laughs> right. To, yeah. Yeah. No, from, that's really good, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, whatever your really dark negative thought is, just reword it a little right. and then think of it that way. And then over time, just keep rewording it to the world might be messed up, but I can make it better. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. No, that is, that's a, you've got a good therapist there. That's a really, really nice observation. I'm going to quote you on that one, if I may. Steal it, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's you know, terrific. Yeah, this change, even just changing the way you describe it a tiny bit, that tiny attitudinal shift is huge. But like I, going back to the lying thing, just because it, I became aware of how much I was lying to others and even myself about it. Uh, even with my attempt 
I started to say, oh, it was, isn't, wasn't really an attempt. It wasn't really that serious. It was just me, you know, I just wanted help or that quote unquote cry for help. And is there a difference between a cry for a help and an actual attempt? I mean, is there? You know, I, I, that exactly. I mean, that's one of the things, again, that I think is so important is there is no difference between a cry for help and an actual attempt. When I realized that, you know, people will say, oh, yeah, the suicidal person was just being dramatic. Okay, that's okay. Yeah, sure, it was dramatic. That suicidal person also uh, has clearly stated for everyone around them, I want to die. And a cry for help means I really need some help. It's not useful. In fact, it is extremely counterproductive to try and distinguish uh, the question of how serious was an attempt. Every attempt is equally serious. Any single attempt of any kind is the best predictor of a future death by suicide. So we just have to treat them all as, you know, this person tried to kill themselves and now they do need our help. And the person who made the attempt, she needs to think of herself as someone who really needs her care. You know, she doesn't need to say, oh, I was just, you know, that was just me. Like, that's exactly the wrong way for her to think. She needs to think of herself as, yeah, I made an attempt and I'm lucky to be alive. And now I need to do the kinds of things so that I don't find myself in that position again. It's very dismissive and almost gaslighting somebody into saying your your problems aren't that serious. And you, oh yeah, yeah, it's terrible. You know, I've had people ask me the nastiest questions. You know, um, uh, one of my editors after an attempt, uh, after uh, I had tried with a knife, he asked me, "Yeah, what kind of knife did you use?" And it was his skepticism that I was using a you know an appropriately savage knife. <laughs> was so flagrant was, was it you know, sharp enough like yeah exactly on. yeah yeah like he, he just uh, uh he wanted to punish me for the fact that i was even complaining about uh, i had made an attempt and that i was worried about making another one he wanted me to he wanted to punish me for for simply saying that much to him and yeah. if you want the suicidal people in your life to make another attempt that's a good approach <laughs> but yeah. if you want to help the people who are suicidal in your life uh, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. And you say uh, after every attempt, you regretted it. You know, you've had something happen that you're happy about, whether you've had children or published a wonderful book or something to that effect. You always point out the positive things that's happened since your attempt and how you regret the attempt. And sadly for me, after my attempt, I, I won't say, you know, I regretted the attempt, but I didn't have much that I felt good about afterwards because I couldn't, right. I couldn't feel happiness. I couldn't feel yeah. any passion towards anything that I was accomplishing. And so I, I was just kind of like, well, I'm not, I don't have anything in my life, a milestone that I feel good about since my attempt. It doesn't mean that I want to make it a, another attempt. But it was that lie that I could not tell anybody that I didn't really regret it or I felt better that I'm still here because then everyone that's interacted with me since my attempt would feel like my interaction didn't mean anything to them. Right. And so I had to lie for years like, oh, yeah, I'm happy to be here when really I, I wasn't. 
Right. But every day was a lie. And then again, it just kind of took me analyzing that, that emotion, that feeling of, dude, you're, <laughs> you're lying to everybody and you're lying to yourself. So just be okay with the fact that you haven't been happy about anything. And then once I was okay with that feeling, that's when I actually started being okay. <laughs> was, yeah, that's when weird... it started to shift. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing, isn't it? You know, just when you tell yourself that, yeah, like, okay, maybe I'm going to be depressed forever. And but I'm not going to pretend that I'm not going to be depressed forever. I'm not going to tell myself that things are going to get better. That is precisely the moment when suddenly, for reasons that I don't think we really understand, that things start to change, you know? The detective came and knocked on the door. And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. It's it's a weird thing. I've been talking about it with this um, wonderful philosopher, Jesse Prince. But somehow, sometimes when you stop hoping for something to be different, that's when you're psychologically the the future opens itself up for you. You know, I don't know exactly why. I, I remember it very much happened to me with um, being a writer. I It was when I was trying and trying and trying to write a novel. I couldn't do it, couldn't do it, couldn't do it. And finally, I gave up. You know, I was like, I'm never going to write a novel. Um, that's, you know, that's not part of going to be part of who I am. And I'm just, I'm giving up on that hope. And it was like within two months of me giving up on that hope of ever being a writer that I wrote the first hundred pages of my first novel. And those are the basically the only hundred pages of the novel that weren't, you know, dramatically subsequently edited. I mean, they basically just were written and stood exactly as they were written. But it it, it took what you've been talking about, this kind of shift in honesty towards my own attitudes. And rather than 
feeling like I had to control my attitudes in order to make some sort of desirable outcome be the case, just like letting go of all that, you know, and just saying, okay, this is just going to be what it is. Exactly. It was weird because like you say, you, you want something to be a certain way. And I was just wanting to feel happy. You right. Know, it's it's yeah. kind of like somebody going out on a dating site and be like, I want to find my soulmate. I want to find Mr. Right. I don't want to be single. And then you just have failure, bad date after bad date. Yeah, you date. know that's <laughs> not going to work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you, when you stop trying to date, when you stop trying to look for somebody, but still keep the options open, I guess, that's when you may find Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, you know. But right. Exactly. Not, yeah. And when a friend comes to you and talks in that language, like I'm looking for this person or that person, you know, it's not going to work out, you know, and you know that they have to like, let go of that idea. And it's not until they let go of that idea, that somehow or other things are going to open up in uh, the appropriate way is I have a friend who's this very talented philosopher and very wise guy. Um, he's been a Buddhist practitioner all his life. He's a philosophy professor. and uh, got his PhD at Harvard, incredibly cool guy. And, you know, he's recently divorced. And I asked him if he was dating anyone. And um, he said, you know, I dated this person for a while, but then it didn't work out. And I'm single right now. And I said, well, how are you feeling about that? I was, you know, worrying about him a little being lonely, etc. And he said, you know, Clancy, um, uh, relationships uh, are exactly like teachers. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And it's the same thing when it comes to relationships. And I think it's, it's, you know, what you were saying about happiness and, you know, just being willing to live with your unhappiness and not feeling like there's some sort of obligation to fake it till you make it or any of that BS is the same way. It's like, once I'm willing to just say, oh, if I'm never happy, that's okay, too. That's when now the student is ready and now the happiness can appear or the lover can appear or the teacher can appear, you know, we're just closed off as long as we're trying to control things. And when we stop trying to control it, uh, we somehow open up in a way that the things that we need can become real. Yeah, there was a topic that I, I wanted to expand upon um, when you were talking about uh, Anthony Bourdain or a lot of, uh, you know, celebrities, rock stars, whatever, right. there are different um, types of suicide. And, and a term that you bring up in the book is parasuicide. And it applies to a lot of people. And I, I think that they don't understand what that means. So uh, what was it? Uh, uh, the British pop star singer, um, uh, I forgot her name now. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Um, her name is just flown out of my head, too. Uh, um, yeah. They tried to make me go to rehab. I said, no, no, no. Yeah, Amy Winehouse. Amy, Amy Winehouse. Winehouse. Yeah. Amy Winehouse is such a good example of a parasuicide because, you know, Amy Winehouse in some sense didn't kill herself. In another sense, well, how do we describe it if someone drink so much alcohol so consistently that they die by alcohol poisoning over the course of a handful of days. And it's clear that even to the person who is singing the song, they tried to make me go to rehab, even to her in that song, you can hear that she's thinking, you know, this may well be the death of me. And there are so many examples of this. And we do it in all these different ways, these self-destructive behaviors that we engage in 
maybe telling ourselves that we're not killing ourselves, but the truth of the matter is that we are actually seeking self-extinction. And being honest with yourself about those kinds of things, I, again, is a, is, a, is a challenging thing, but a huge step towards the possibility of actually having mental flourishing. I define it as slowly killing yourself. Yeah, that, um, it's that, self-destructive behaviors, eating disorders, addictions. There, a lot of these things are slowly killing you. Yeah, slowly killing yourself, and there's so many different ways we have of doing it, and um, we see people doing it all around us. And the first text on suicide in English actually was written by a guy named John Sim, an English theologian and a philosopher. And John Sim said that. Um, those kinds of methods, what we now call parasuicidal behaviors or deaths by despair, well, his problem with those behaviors is that they were a form of suicide that also included a lot of self-deception on top of the suicide, that it was just suicide, but it was suicide plus a ton of self-deception. And he thought that the person who was directly attempting to take her his own life was in a slightly better position than the, the parasuicidal because at least they were looking death in the face and they were confronting what it is that they wanted to do whereas the parasuicidal person wasn't even wanting to acknowledge to herself what she was actually seeking you know yeah no it, again it goes back to that lying that self-deception yeah that lying that yeah. self-deception i tell you you put your finger on one of on, on a real key to all of this, which is that if you can let yourself accept the fact that you don't have to lie to yourself about any of this stuff, and then the next step, you don't have to lie to anybody else either. You are, you know, there's this famous psychotherapist who said, died about 10 years ago, who said he spent his entire career trying to convince people of the untruth of four words. I am not okay. That was his whole career, he said, what really came down to nothing more than trying to convince people of the untruth of those four words, I am not okay. And all the lying that you do, whether it's to yourself or to other people, is just motivated by that view that you are not okay. And if you can just let go of that and say, you know what, I'm fine just the way I am. Um, I'm going to tell the truth uh, to myself and I'm going to tell the truth to other people and, you know, let the chips fall where they may, suddenly life will be a lot easier. Yeah. Well, it's, it's weird because it's, you know, sort of like the obsession we have with image or whatever, but it's sometimes it's okay to not be okay. Yeah, little, exactly. Little, you know, yeah. I mean, we, we all post these pictures on social media, look at this fabulous dinner I'm having or this wonderful vacation. And then I'm looking at that and going, man, I, I'm just, my life here. sucks. Yeah. Was it, <laughs> yeah. you refer to it as compare and despair right. is yeah. the term. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and so it's like, I post a picture on social media, you know, me smiling at some convention when really at that convention the, the hotel caught on fire and the the power was out but you know here i am smiling and right people think well you're having a great time when they don't know the reality behind the photo or the picture <laughs> Just... yeah exactly yeah that's um why my uh my brilliant wife the writer amy barradale 
called the her first collection of short stories you are having a good time because <laughs> she thinks this is this like uh, you know constant lie that we are telling other people and that we are telling ourselves you know you are having a good time when in fact as as she put it you know i always had trouble with um the Buddha's first noble truth that life is suffering. And the reason that I had trouble with it is I was like, I always kind of felt like, well, but that's not true, isn't it? There's lots of aspects of life that are not suffering. And as she said to me, no, no, you're missing the point. The point is that if you're suffering, you very often feel like, you know, I'm the only fuck up in all this world of all these other people, these smooth successes who are doing so great. But that's, that belief is the one you have to discard. You have to recognize that all these people who like seem so cool, seem like they've got it all together, seem like they're successful, happy. Look at their Instagram feeds. It proves it. They have good lives and I don't. Once you recognize that that belief is false, ah, what a weight comes off your shoulders and you recognize, no, I'm not alone. Everybody, everybody's life, you know, it, it, as you said, it's okay to not be okay. Because yeah. everybody is not okay. You know, we, we talk about these unachievable body images, whether it's a, a model or some guy with a six-pack abs, but we're all complicit with, hey, look, I'm having a great dinner with my family. Hey, look, I'm having a wonderful time with my child. Because you're not posting the photo at 3 a.m. when you're having to change the diaper. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I know, I know. It's this unachievable <laughs> happiness that yeah. we just look at online all the time. And, and it reminds me of the old 50s movies, like everything was perfect, you know, the age yeah, of innocence. Exactly. Like, no, there was drug use, suicide and, and messed up stuff all the time. And it's yeah. happening now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they may have been a lot more messed up, you know, that um, toxic nostalgia is also a really bad thing. But um, no, I know I sometimes feel like we would we would do so well if we came up with something called like the un-Instagram and you're only allowed to post pictures of your, you know, your real life, like all the laundry piled up in your room that hasn't been folded yet or, you know, <laughs> your, your child just like bawling his eyes out as you try and drag him into his preschool or whatever it happens to be. So it would make people feel a lot better. Yeah. And, and I, sometimes I've posted not even negative things in my mind, but I've posted things that I felt were half funny, half joking, but half serious. Uh, right. I, I think I posted something like, I'm a people pleaser, but I disappoint everybody. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, it <laughs> That's was a good one. It's kind of a joke. And and I got like a dozen messages. Are you okay? And I'm like, oh my right. God. Like yeah. I, I'm fine. It's yeah. and, and I'm glad that people reach out. I'm glad that right. they, sure. Of course. Yeah. And and yeah. that gives me faith in humanity. But at the same time, it's like we're so used to all of the positivity that any negativity is like, oh, something's wrong with Justin. You're we right. To, yeah. We need to panic. Fix yeah, yeah, exactly. We need to fix Justin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And he's just telling the truth. Yeah, yeah. This is um, this is something that has gone terribly awry in our culture, and it especially worries me for people whose belief structures are really being formed by it. You know, people. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old who uh, 
don't have the same perspective on these fake realities that um, those of us who are a little bit older and lived before these fake realities were so in our faces um, that we do have a little bit more of a jaded attitude towards it. I I think social media is the bane of our existence, but yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm just, I have to be completely honest about this. Social media is just, you know, I feel like if, if there is a hell, I'm sorry, Steve Jobs, but you're probably there because of the iPhone and social media, man. It's, this was this was a really bad idea. <laughs> it can be used for good, and you know, yeah, yeah, raise awareness, and blah, right? Blah, blah. Exactly, <laughs> and yeah, and resistance, political resistance, et cetera, et cetera. But oh boy, it's been the source of a lot of widespread uh, confusion. I do a true crime podcast and I try to be very uh, well-intentioned because talking about true crime is you're talking about the worst possible time in this person or this family's life. And I can't control how somebody consumes my, you know, my content, whether they are, are listening to it to be educational or listening to it for entertainment with your book, you can't control how someone consumes it, but I guess how did you approach the book in the most, I guess, ethical or well-intentioned manner? Um, Yeah, I think, thank you for that question. What I tried to do is that when I get into those areas, okay, this I recognize could be, um, could be hard for someone who's in a vulnerable position to read. I do just say, you know, I give big trigger warnings and say, listen, maybe skip this chapter. Or if I'm getting into terrain where I feel like, um, again, this is a person who's uh, psychologically vulnerable um, is going to be feeling more vulnerable as they as they read this stuff. I tell them, you know, go take a break, go to the back of the book, look at these interviews I have with people who are really good about talking about how to, you know, overcome these feelings of despair, feelings of panic, feelings that actually um, lead to a suicide attempt. That's really why the book has a lot of sort of resources for people in crisis, you know, some short and some longer, because I wanted to be aware of the fact that when you're... So when I read both Darkness Visible, Styron's classic on his depression, and Alvarez's The Savage God, his classic on Sylvia Plath's death by suicide and his own suicide attempt. Both of those were books that significantly contributed to at least one and maybe two attempts of my own. And both of those books, they they didn't have those kinds of warnings, resources, and that kind of thing. And I just thought, well, I want to be sure that nothing against those books. They're great books, but they're, they, they're books that actually probably shouldn't be read by someone who's feeling psychologically vulnerable, someone who's in a rough patch, because I think they, they really could make things worse. So I wanted to be sure with this book that I really, at every place where I feel like there might be a bit of danger, I say, okay, hey, you know, avoid this or leave it for later or go look at this different section of the book because we are talking about potentially dangerous stuff. The other thing that I try to do that I think is so important and that I noticed in this podcast, you're really good about doing whenever possible, not let it get too, too heavy, you know, recognize that we can laugh at ourselves about this stuff and we should laugh at ourselves about this stuff. And, you know, point out that, hey, I mean, 
I, I can look at my own life and my many failed attempts and I can laugh about it and say, this guy's a little bit ridiculous. And I think that ability to laugh at yourself lightens the pressure a bit. You know, it, it, it lifts the pain. It um, removes the blinders. It, it makes you realize that things aren't as terribly serious as maybe they were starting to feel. And when, when things are not so terribly serious, then you realize, okay, you know, Hey, I don't need to do anything drastic right now. I, I, I can handle this. Yeah. And I, I try to bring some levity to the situation i try to bring some lightheartedness to it because it does get really heavy it's a fine line that i walk a lot of the time because you know i i mean when i was listening to your book and you you talk about you're at this one institution and you try to escape and you run to the door and it's locked <laughs> i mean i burst out laughing because i oh, wasn't good. laughing I'm glad. At- <laughs> no, I, I, I wasn't laughing at you. I was just like, oh, God, because that's if I was in your shoes, <laughs> yeah, your, yeah. your your traction socks, whatever they give you when you're <laughs> in the institution. You know, I was just like, I was laughing because I'm like, yeah, it's just ridiculous. Um, yeah, it couldn't be more ridiculous. That's why I love that story, too, is it's just like, oh, my God, this is just yeah. I mean, it is comical. Yeah. And I, I interviewed this one person and they were in this horrible domestic abuse relationship, uh, very physical abuse and everything. And they were talking about how they, they ran away from their partner and they're hiding in the bathroom and the partner picks up like a stool and is like smashing the door in with the stool. And, and I'm like, so when they finally smashed it in, did they poke their head through and say, here's Johnny, like the yeah, shining, exactly. like, you know, and, and they laughed and I was like, thank God they laughed. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, this is a horrible situation. And I need, I wanted to bring it up a little bit like, Hey, you know, you're talking to me, you're safe. And, right. and the audience, let's, let's just take a moment to breathe here because this exactly. is a, a messed up situation. And, and sometimes, you know, I'm sure I've said some things that, didn't go quite, you know, <laughs> the way I wanted them to. And, but I'm learning. And to your point of, you know, it's your intent of how do you talk about these subjects without triggering or doing more harm in the world? And it's yeah. something that I'm learning every day and trying to get better at. <laughs> yeah, I think that's all we can do is like kind of do our best and learn and listen to people and how we affect them. And also, you know, I think that the the buddha is very good about this when he talks about um having careful speech you know which is one of the most important virtues for a person to cultivate on the buddha's account and he think he really points out that the the key to having careful speech is just to have good intentions it's not always going to you're still going to wind up saying things that you you know wish you hadn't said or you know you mischaracterize something or whatever but as long as the intention is good it's going to slowly but surely at least guide you in the right direction. If you come from a place of love and understanding and as opposed to judgment and... Uh, exactly. Know, yeah, you, you might not say perfect things, but at least you'll be taking things in the right direction. And, you know, as you pointed out in your conversation with that person, you know, giving them the opportunity to be able to laugh a little bit about it probably is a really healing thing for them. Yeah. That's all we can do is hope that, yeah. you know, people take it that way. Um, yeah. I, God, I had so many, I, as soon as I got you on the line, man, I just, it, all my, my, my whole game plan just went out the window. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no. It's, I think it probably went better actually than, <laughs> than the questions I had. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on um, like uh, 
like euthanasia. Oh, sure. Because I know Canada has a new law that allows people to essentially register or sign up for state-assisted suicide. Yeah. I think it's incredibly important. I think it's, um, you know, Valerius Maximus, this Roman traveler, wrote about the ancient Massimilians where present present day Marseille, he said, you know, they have a council people can go to and they can make reasoned arguments for why their life should end. And people go and make these arguments both in moments of despair and in moments when they're um, wildly successful because they recognize that their life couldn't get any better. So they choose to end it at that point. And um, he says this with the greatest respect for this practice. I think um, it's a big advance in civilization when we recognize we often may need doctors when we're being born. We will often need doctors when we're dying, and we may actively need their help. And uh, psychiatric and mental suffering is no different from physical and mental suffering, except that we don't understand it as well. So I think it's really important that the Canadians are doing a very morally important thing, and they're following in with some other European nations that have already adopted and implemented these laws. Now, I'm not saying that I recommend that anyone seek this assistance, not at all, you know, but for me, it's like a lot of our um, rights, bodily rights, when it comes to medical practice uh, and bioethics, that you have the right is very, very important. It doesn't mean that you're going to choose to exercise the right. And the fact is that having the right to get help very often means that then, because you're no longer panicking, you're no longer freaking out, you choose not to exercise the right. So we find in these death with dignity states in the United States, for example, that uh, lots of people apply for medical assistance in dying, for physician-assisted euthanasia. And then when the time comes, their application is approved, the time comes, they choose, they elect not to get it. And the reason they report when they, when they're interviewed is that they got relief just from the knowledge that they could have the help if they needed it. And I think the same is true for medical assistance in dying on psychiatric grounds. So I think I think it's incredibly important. I think it's a real advance in civilization that we are giving people this right. But I also think at the same time, it will have the effect of reducing suicide in a population because people will feel a lot less pressure knowing that they have this option. I talked about this with a suicidologist, Desiree Lestage, and Desiree pointed out to me, you know, this is a time when bureaucracy might actually save lives. And what she meant is, you know, okay, my application's been approved. I know that I'm going to get help in committing suicide. And then, you know, it takes this time. You have to wait. And then in that time to wait and consider, and talk to your friends about it and all these other things, you might realize, huh, I had a lot more reasons to live than I had recognized. And you change your mind. Yeah, it's a it's a wait period. It's a cooling off period. Yeah, exactly. It's a cooling off period. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then a uh, final question in my notes for you was uh, we've had SSRIs, we've had um, talk therapy, and now we're starting to adopt ketamine and even uh, psilocybin mushrooms uh, and uh, ecstasy MDMA. Uh, right. We're, we're starting to adopt those. How, what do you think of ketamine infusions? Well, I've had a lot of people write to me about um, 
their chronic suicidal ideation and some people who've tried this and said that it's worked wonders for them and recommended it to me. Other people who have tried it, um, I remember a young a uh, former student of mine in India who's trying it right now, and she's saying that it's it's not helping her at all. You know, I think it's good for us to um, overcome our moral prejudices against these substances that may well be um, profoundly therapeutically helpful. And I think Michael Pollan, with his you know book, um, "This Is Your Mind on Plants." Uh, did a real service to our culture. I myself haven't tried these things. I'm, I'm interested in maybe trying some of them at some point. I don't know. But, you know, I think that when it comes to particularly substances that have been seen in the past to have real psychological therapeutic benefits, why not uh, see if they can help? And, you know, why not add to our possible arsenal of things that could help people with depression, anxiety, post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, these kinds of things. And if they work, great. And if they don't, well, then they'll fall into the large class of drugs that we've tried that, that don't work. You know, lithium works wonders for some people. For other people like me, it doesn't work at all. It actually makes things worse. So the more tools we have in our toolbox for... Um, the many different kinds of mental suffering that people endure, the better. Right. And so I guess I, I won't, I could talk to you all day, by the way, but uh, yeah, I, 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 know yes, I feel the same. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll let you get back to your day. But thank you so much for, for coming on and talking with me. And I know we had a, you know, you had COVID and a lot of scheduling problems, but I'm super, super happy that we made this happen. And uh, yeah, me too, man. Thank you so much, Justin. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.